Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Bitter End, Tennessee today. And uh, Ray, you live in Tennessee. Scott, you also live in Tennessee. And my reaction is everything in Tennessee is Bitter End. Am I wrong on that? That's where I was going to go, except for, no, no exceptions. Isn't that where the Tennessee legislative body resides? Is that the bitter end? Yeah, it's called Nashville. Yes, the capital. Yes. The capital. And Scott, that's where you're from. By the way, listeners, we have a great guest with us today. Uh, We're going to do something, in my opinion, that's uh, quite different than what we've typically been doing. And we've invited Scott to be here to represent the entire music industry of the known world, of the Christian world. But given his home base of Nashville and that he is a musician, we thought this could be a very fun conversation around communication in that industry and how musicians can read, if you will, their audience. And having the opportunity to have Scott gives us that chance to explore those issues in this podcast. Ray, are you with us? Are you ready to go? You look like- I'm I'm ready to go. I, I think at this point, we probably could go ahead and say Scott's full name, Scott Rowley, so you can Google him. You yes. can find out if he's really real. Oh, that's you know that's a good observation. We do want him Googled. And in fact, if you can find his video, you'll love it. Well, we asked Scott on because we've spent all of our time talking about communication. And this is a special area, a kind of group communication, but it's how a musician connects with his audience, with his crowd. And one of the things that brought me to this, just a real quick short story, when I was at Michigan State University, I had the good fortune of having a colleague who was a close friend of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. And this person actually was a very close friend of Gary Talent, the bass player. So are you name-dropping Bear? Is that what you're doing right now? You're just I'm trying to, to sound musical. This? I'm trying to sound musical without you're, having to sing anything. You're trying and, to let Scott know you're one of his? Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm in that group. And we were invited to sing, uh, see Bruce Springsteen live in Detroit. And one of the things that we got to do was after the performance, after the concert, we got to go to the hotel and visit with the band members. And one of them, Gary, said, you know, we almost lost him tonight. And that struck me as a really unusual comment because I never thought of bands having that much focus on the audience reaction, generally in a general sense if it's good or bad, but not the sense of it could get out of control. And Gary Townsend says, no, two or three times it's been dangerously close to being out of control. Hmm. So that's why I thought maybe let's talk to Scott about communicating when you're an entertainer, when you're a musician, when you have a, a live audience. So I guess one of the first questions I'd ask Scott is, uh, are there any rules that musicians tend to use when communicating with their audience? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This is a great privilege. I love both of you. And uh, your communication styles and skills are really why I'm here and still doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I think the well, rules... Kind of, this kind of praise and affirmation is why we <laughs> have you here. And you All should right. probably save your appreciation till the yeah. end of the podcast because yeah, you don't know what's going to happen yet. That's right. I'm basically a suck up. I'll do anything to get a dollar, you know, whatever. I, I am being paid, right? Um, anyway, after 40 years of touring and, you know, recording, writing songs, I think I've got 460 plus songs. I really made this a career and that's why you've never heard of it. But at the same time, <laughs> um, there are rules that go with it. And uh, I have had bands and just put you know, literally millions of miles on the road. But every night you play, I think the first rule is 
They're here to hear you sing, not talk. So most of the time, if we played a show, whether it was a little coffee house or a big arena, you came out and you took your guitar, your piano, and you sang a song. And normally it's the songs that most people have heard of yours. And we did have some mild success with our music. So we would we would try to play the songs people like. And you want your audience to be happy. And uh, so if you're popular at all, you try to play those popular songs. And you do it uh, intentionally. So now, um, Scott, I yeah. hate to interrupt you, but am I right in saying that your number one song was Don't Be Picking Your Nose When the Next Car Comes? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Bob. Uh, that's all I really have to say. Uh, no, I, thank you, Bob. And uh, be reminded that, yes, those are the bad moments. I would <laughs> laugh about the idea of achy, breaky heart. Now, that's a great country hit, but I would hate to have to sing that every night for the rest of my life. So there are certain rules that, that get bent on these occasions. But for the most part, yeah, if you've got an achy, breaky heart in your repertoire, you're going to do it. Mm. Um, so that's that's the first question. That's the way you connect with an audience. You smile. And what my friend Joni Mitchell says is she picks out a person in the front row, makes eye contact, and then sings the entire show to them. And huh. I, think that's, I think that's a very valid way of approaching communication, eye to eye and heart to heart. Now, when you think about that, uh, Scott, in, in your mind, does that make your performance, your connection more personal by identifying an individual and really connecting with them so that you feel like I've got this real connection that I'm hanging on to? Absolutely. I think the point being, we've all watched sterile musicians who don't seem to be engaged. Even if they're great, they can be sterile and you can walk away feeling like, wow, they didn't really care. Or um, like I've talked about the band U2, or you mentioned your friend, The Boss. Bruce Springsteen. People walk away from those concerts by bands like that, and it's a religious experience. They feel something spiritual coming from them. Most mm. recently for me, it's the Paul McCartney tour that he's been doing for years that has a very powerful spiritual connection to me. And it has nothing to do with their personal walk with God. It's really about the way their music enters into your personal experiences and the way they capture those and are encouraging. Scott, hmm. do you have any recall of your, what you consider your best, fondest experiences in, in dealing with an audience and connecting? Yeah, I mean, there are moments, I remember we our band played at Taylor University, and we had a terrific night. Why that was better than another place, I don't know. We did a show that was a very big show, like a 40,000-person show in Mercer, Pennsylvania, we were touring with Keith Green and Second Chapter of Acts, and we did this show with them, which was very rewarding, and the, the, the audience was appreciative. And there are also moments where you play someplace in Hicksville, Ohio, and you outnumber the audience with, with a five-man band or a three-man band. So those days are just as real, and you learn, I think you learn every time you walk out. I really, I really relate this to sports, because both of you are athlete and the way that sports teaches you something every time you do it. That's that's kind of what this is like. It does strike me that one of the things that you're saying, Scott, which I think might be relevant in a, in a crossover to other venues for communication, is just that, that the, the venue makes a difference. And if your band outnumbers the people that are there, that makes it more difficult to entertain. And I, I remember being asked to speak at places and realizing I was expecting a much bigger crowd. And now I've got these two or three people out there and you're right. feeling, now, how do I adjust? How do I relate? And so one of the things I think about is this notion of being able to assess the venue, the crowd, if you will, size, and to somehow 
structure your way of performing to meet that size, to adjust to that. Now, is that something you did as a musician or no? Yeah, absolutely. That says it better. It's truly the idea that let's say I'm I'm hired by a church to come in and share my personal faith in Christ and my personal vision for mission or something that they know about me, which was really the, the heart of our work was taking the good news we have that Christ is alive and that we can know Jesus personally. We would take that and then Our songs all were, in some sense, formed around that idea. Well, if you've got a very small group, you can be intimate in a way that you can't be with a large group. So you you just really do that. You adjust on the fly. One of the strangest nights I've ever had was in Amarillo, Texas. I was opening for a rock and roll band called Jerusalem. and was a Christian-based gig, and they had hired the Amarillo Stadium, the, the big venue concert hall. And, and, you know, those are 2,000 seats, and they were expecting a crowd like that. And literally 50 people showed up. And so it was embarrassing. It was it was like, hey, it's time to call it quit. But my ego was such that no way, no way was I quitting on that day. So uh, we did the show and had a, a terrific time with everybody from the promoters and the people that were sponsoring it all the way down to every individual. I think we gave everyone an album, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was Amarillo, Texas. So I kind of avoid that anytime I'm booking Dave. Okay. Let me wonder with you another issue kind of related to uh, something Bob and I talked about in the previous episodes about confrontation Uh or giving feedback to people about their behavior. How do you deal with crowd members who are becoming an unwanted distraction? Yeah, I think always the best. It's like being in athletics. If you're a pitcher in a baseball game and people are yelling things at you, you can hear that. Not not so much in in a concert hall, but if those those bad messages do get to you, you have to ignore them. You have to you have to rise above that and be bigger than that. If you pick on somebody, audiences don't like they don't like confrontation. They don't like people to pick on them. So I've learned quickly just let it go. You know, you, you, this is like you remember the old pictures had rabbit ears they called it or something. You'd hear somebody say, "Throw the bum out." You know, you'd have you'd have to deal with that emotionally. If nobody likes your music, it's an emotional downer. But fortunately, throughout my 40 years of touring or playing, I only went places if I was asked to actually come there. And uh, that made it a lot easier to say, okay, we're, we're welcome. This is a, a couple of bad apples. You know, you don't really deal with that too much. Most, most, I think most artists don't have that. Of course, these tragedies that are happening at rock and roll concerts and the sadness that goes with people who are out of line. I mean, it, it's a real problem. But for my part, I think you have to ignore that and, and love the audience and care for those people. And that's a little different than, let's say, stand-up comedy. My impression of stand-up comedy is, boy, you get heckled from the crowd and you go right after them. It, be- it becomes a part of your routine. But right. I mean, you say, as musicians, that doesn't cut it. There's a whole different environment out there that says, no, rule number one, they are here to hear your music. Right. They don't want pushback or anything like that. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I do see it that way. And uh, from that first thing they hear out of your mouth as a singer, you'll determine whether you're connecting or not. And usually there's smiles and at least some kind of a, a positive. Ray and I have laughed about if they boo and if they do some kind of a gesture like this, you know, like go away or boo, that means you got to adjust. You better adjust that set, you know. 
Scott, the listening audience cannot see that gesture. Scott, okay, by good. the way, listening audience, by the way, Scott's making these huge gestures of putting his hands over his head and chewing people away. Just so that you know, when he says, when you see this gesture. Yeah. But let me summarize. It is interesting. What I'm hearing you say is really the communication for you with the audience begins with nonverbal behavior, their initial reactions, the smiles on their face, how they react uh, physically to the music. And obviously, if they know your music well and they start singing along with you or they start doing things that connect with the particular songs that you're doing, you're saying that non-verbally you pick up on it right away. You get to feel almost instantaneously, right? Yeah, that's true. And because my songs weren't extremely popular, I had songs on the radio and that kind of thing. And people would sing along, which was always gratifying and it makes you feel good. But it's it's always just that. And you do your best to put together a package, a show, you know, whatever you call it. I toured with a Christian artist named Michael Card. And anytime I called it a set or a show, he would say, it's a ministry opportunity. <laughs> so So we would laugh about that all the time. Well, that ministry opportunity went well, right up to where they screamed, get off the stage. And then from there, it was, it was great. By the way, I have a great story with Mike. We played Disneyland out in Anaheim, California, not Disney World, but Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And it was during the time when Christian bands and artists were featured, like Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Michael Carr, they would be featured at a Disney World or Disneyland. And so we went to Disneyland. And because I was more young-oriented, youth-oriented, he had me play more songs whenever we did those kinds of things. But we're in Anaheim, and we go out to Disneyland. We get we get there, and they take us down underneath. And I don't know if you know all about the underneath of these Disney places. Mm-hmm. But there's just miles of corridors and staging and you get staged, you get set up below, uh, you know, an entire floor or two below. And then they raise you up in the middle of Futureland or Tomorrowland. So we were we were down, down there and, you know, there's Goofy and he's got his his head that he was wearing, you know, the, the character in this. And then Cinderella, you know, Cinderella's all upset because something wasn't going on. So she's smoking a cigarette, screaming at uh, one of the directors. And I just looked at Mike and thought, huh. This is this is really what show business is all, is really all about, and it all worked out well. But you know, those are the strangest moments, especially as a as a Christian entertainer. You're thinking you're not going to run into that stuff too much, but you do all, all along the way. So Mike and I had good laughs about that. We still we still laugh about being at Disneyland. You know, I'm going to anticipate Ray has another question. One thing we need to know is we've got about five more minutes before we're reaching time. But I also feel like I need to say to the listening audience when I gave Scott that cheap shot about was your number one song, Don't Be Picking Your Nose When the Next Car Comes. That was a song that Scott designed, I, at least I thought, especially for my son when we were at a small college in Arkansas. And it was a huge hit because when Scott started the song, he dedicated it to Rob, which caused Rob to go red and immediately melt into the front row. But that's one of the fun memories I have. So I knew that wasn't your number one song, Scott. It just was number one for me in my heart. Yeah. Okay, One, maybe one more question for me, Scott. Who are some of the musicians you've seen who you think are best at connecting with the audience? Yeah, well, we mentioned Paul McCartney. I think I think McCartney is just, I heard Joe Scarborough from MSNBC say that McCartney is the Mozart of this generation, hmm. which I don't disagree with. I mean, it's, I, I don't I don't think I think that's right. His ability to uh, communicate with his songwriting and his performance. Of course, we mentioned you two. They were a, a huge band for me early on. Uh, James Taylor's ability. Uh, yeah. Just uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable to me. 
And then, uh, you know, I think about, well, you mentioned the boss. I mean, I think he's got that same religious styled following. People are just rabid about, about Bruce Springsteen. So, and those are all, those are all older bands for me. I'm, I'm 70 years old. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm kind of aging myself. I'm not as, as cool and hip <laughs> today. I don't know a lot of the bands today, but my son is a terrific music producer here in Nashville. And he plays music for me all the time that I envy and, and I'm very, very impressed by. Uh, the music business seems to be in good hands. And no matter what genre, it just seems like there's a growing love for music and a love for entertaining and communicating. Can you name one woman so we don't get a lot of hostile feedback? Well, obviously, Joni Mitchell is my favorite oh, is. female forever. She's just in the top five or six great songwriters of all time. So Terrific. It struck me, Scott, when you named the people you did, including Joni, that a lot of the music itself communicates to the people. That's one why they're there, but it also captures them and gives them this experience. Are there additional ways they connect? Even as you think about yourself as a musician, you are connecting with the audience through your music, through the content of what you're saying, the way you frame the music. But are there other things that you do to increase that connection when you're on stage, when it's live? Yeah, well, you know, you, you you look at someone like Bob Dylan, who to me is one of the top five songwriters of all time. You know, whether you like his voice or you like his arrangements, that, that doesn't matter. His songwriting, his talent, putting words into music, it's as great as, it, as anybody's ever done. And I mentioned the Beatles or I mentioned the others. But yeah, I think there's a lingering connection that goes on and on and on. They build on one album and then three years later, they build something that connects back with that on through an entire career. And there is, I think, that idea that they they want their audience to follow and track with their life. It's not by accident. These are amazing artists. And I don't know if you've ever tried to write a song. You know, part, part of what I'd love to say to people who are out there, I didn't know I could write songs until I was 20 years old. But when I, when I discovered that I could actually put music and lyrics together, that's not something that just everybody can do. Either you can do it or you can't. Can I let you know now, Scott, that... Uh, both Ray and I can't. No, we're on, we're on the can't side. We're in the can't group. Just just yeah. take that to the bank. Yeah, and obviously I can't do what you do, which I wish I could, but that's okay. Uh, you just have to find where your where your musical talent or your gift is, and then use that and, and exploit that. I, I do think we talked about success. Success is artistically. It's not just financial. There's, there's there is success financially, and I was on the bottom end of that financial success, but. There is an artistic success that comes uh, when you write something that does communicate and does hit home with people. And that's a terrific feeling. One of my first songs on the radio was a song called Within My Reach. And when it was played, uh, that was the first time I heard my voice singing back to me. Huh. And uh, it does, you know, it was a very, uh, it was fulfilling, it was thrilling, but it was also spooky. It was kind of weird. Ah, very good. Well, listen, we are at time. And so I yeah. guess, Ray, if, if you had a summary or Scott, if you had a summary, maybe to think of, okay, how would I wrap up this session? What would that be? Go ahead, Scott. No, just simply, art is a great thing. It, it is the communicative gift. And if you're an artist, if you have an ability to do something, I think what we're trying to support is get out and do it. Give it your very best shot. Labor in it. It's okay. Don't don't look at it as a waste of time. So many people are turned off because parents or other people of authority think that they're wasting time playing songs or playing music or trying to, you know, be a woodcarver, whatever you do. So I'm just saying for the arts, I love the fact that both of you encouraged me as a young teenager to 
just to follow my dream and to give it my best. That was unintentional, by the way, Scott. So <laughs> <laughs> it is such a great treat to hear you talk about your part of your career and your experience and your insight into music and entertaining and communicating uh, in that setting. So thanks for being on. Well, we're, we're here. We're here to the bitter end. <laughs> The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.